This is episode 57 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Danicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 57 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's Danicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Vicki Thorne, founder of the Project Rachel Post-Abortion Healing Ministry and the recipient of the 2021 Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae Medal. We discuss how she got involved in pro-life ministry, the lasting physical, spiritual, and emotional effects of abortion, and how future generations can continue to share her ministry of love and mercy. Let's sit down together for this wide-ranging and fascinating conversation. Well, Vicki Thorne, thank you so much for coming to be with us here on the podcast. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where and what did you study in college? Kind of those sorts of things. Okay. Well, I'm a Minnesota girl. Uh, share my hometown with Charles Lindbergh for those people old enough to recognize that name. Small rural Minnesota town, Little Falls. I was educated there by the Franciscan Sisters of Little Falls that had a girls boarding and day, day high school in those days. I am an only child, uh, so didn't have any siblings. And being in a small town, there's a lot of grace in that you know a lot of you know a lot of people. And there's a freedom in growing up there that isn't in a big city. Um, when I think back to riding my bike, you know, miles to somebody's house, nobody followed you. Nobody, you know, there was nothing going on like that. And so that was that was a real grace. And the Franciscan sisters were a real blessing in terms of a vision of Catholicism um, in terms of who are we called to be. Okay. And I can't say that specifically we ever really nailed that down in terms of conversation, but it was really the atmosphere of the place that we were in. And that high school was, I think maybe a rarity at that point. I'm not sure, but we had girls that came from all over, including other countries um, that were boarding students and then we were the day students that were there. But that gave me a sense of a broader world. These weren't just the local the local girls and we, you know, all shared a, a background, but rather to be with girls who are from other places and, and other experiences was really one of those broadening um, life moments. Um, went on for four years, but moments um, where you have a different idea about what what goes on in the world okay mm -hmm. um then i went to the university of minnesota and got a degree in psychology um i started out uh in medicine but decided that psych was what i wanted and the reason for that is this friend who had come to the boarding school when she was a sophomore and i was a junior uh had an abortion in the summer between her her um, sophomore and junior year abortion wasn't on my chart ken this is in the 70s. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't there. And I'm baffled by what this is all about. Her mother arranged it for her in the summer. Um, I discovered later there was abuse in the family and she'd already had a baby and her brother was the father of both of those children. But she was a mess. 
I mean, she was a mess after this abortion. Again, we weren't talking about it. We were not in a place of talking about legalization or anything else. And I'm a high schooler myself. And I, I just knew that this was a life shattering event for her. Okay. Life goes on. <laughs> um, you know, went to the University of Minnesota, as I said, started out in pre-med and then decided I wanted to be in psych. The reason I wanted to be in psych is because of my friend. I, I It just stayed with me. And I thought, well, maybe I can figure out what that was about because everybody talked about abortion just being, you know, easy and simple and no consequences to it. And so that was how, how I got to that point. Well, then I was still, I was in the church, but I was going to a parish church with an aunt and uncle that I lived with. And one day I wandered over to the Newman Center and the University of Minnesota had a great Newman Center at that point. And so I started going to daily mass and found a friendship circle of college students who were faith-based and we just really bonded. Okay. It was a real gift because at a school as big as the University of Minnesota, it's very hard to make friends. So one day I was at Mass, and there were two new guys who came to Mass that day. And at the kiss of peace, I went over to shake hands. And when I shook hands with the first one, a shock of electricity went up my arm. And I thought, I should pay attention. This is unusual. I've never had this happen before. (laughs) So I introduced myself afterwards. And to this day, the other guy he was with is still our good friend. (laughs) I mean, that's uh, almost 50 years, all right? Um, But we were all serious about our faith. He was older and more mature than I was. He'd been out teaching and lived in California and was coming back to to pursue a PhD at the University of Minnesota. But that was the start of our relationship, really based in our faith, which to this day, I'm just so eternally grateful. I dated other people. So did he. But it was like God said, okay, pay attention, you two. (laughs) I'm going to make this real clear to you. (laughs) Who would have known that uh, static electricity could lead to love? Yeah, who would have thought? And especially because there were no rugs in that place. It was all time. So static electricity is a serious issue there. <laughs> wow. Well, tell us a little bit about your, your husband and, and your family. Well, my husband got his PhD from the University of Minnesota. We were living in Minnesota. Was, originally, I was a Minnesota girl, and that's where I had finished my college degree. And then I got a job through a friend of mine. There was a woman who was the mother superior of the Newman Center. And her, she was came from a family. Her husband, her son owned a lot of properties in Minneapolis, rental properties and stuff. And that was just kind of her ministry. And she worked there. I don't know that they ever paid her a penny, but she was really that person who made connections and was there to talk to. You got a problem, whatever. And so, um, you know, I, I met, met Bill there. And um, then when we were married, she found me a job through her son, and I was an apartment rental manager for 675 units. Now, I'm a kid coming out of college. I just want to frame that for you in terms of 675 units. Um, so I did rental, you know, met people, helped them find apartments. The buildings were all different. They were all basically in the University of Minnesota area, but then um, I got a reputation with a rental company that was called the Apartment Guide, and it was the first of its kind in the country that did free counseling for apartments. You, if you came in, you didn't have to pay a fee, but they would help you to find an apartment. Well, they hired me to work there. So I did that for a while. Now, I have to say that in looking back on it, I learned a lot in terms of people skills. You know, if you're selling an apartment to somebody, you got to know what you're doing. All right. And if you're sending somebody blind to a building, 
okay, it's even worse in a sense. And I was successful at it. And then my husband got a call from Marquette University to come teach here in Milwaukee. And so we came to Milwaukee and he happened to have a cousin here who was a very renowned Catholic author and his wife was a very famous Catholic artist. And we kind of became their kids. They were never blessed with children. And he decided that I should work for the archdiocese. And he called somebody and got me a job that didn't exist as the, as the respect life director. This is when the abortion issue was just starting to foment. Okay. Sure. And so the bishops were talking about this, but they hadn't really worked out all the fine points. So now I'm the, now I'm the respect life director for the archdiocese in Milwaukee. And um, then I got a bright idea one day and my bright idea was, we should train priests to how to help women who've had abortions in light of my friend, right? And so I organized the first post-abortion healing conference of its kind in the world, as far as I know. All right. And this is a long time ago. And um, brought in psychologists and other people in terms of really framing this bigger than just, just the sacramental piece. You have to understand what's going on with her so that you can be effective. Mm-hmm. Well, the Archbishop at the time, Archbishop Weekland, said to me, Vicki, I'll give you whatever you need to do that. You start it. And so I did. And I trained priests and mental health people and others. And media got hold of one of my trainings and it went national. It just exploded. And what year was was that? You know, I was trying to think about this. It had to be like um, maybe 84 between 80 between 84 and 87. Okay, Okay, because there were several things I did in there, but it just could just blow up. Yeah. And so then I took this little break. And then by 1990 is when I decided I would start the National Office of Post-Abortion Healing. And Archbishop Weekland said, Vicki, give you whatever you need to do that. And so that was the start of that ministry. And dioceses were calling me to come in and to do trainings, to help them start ministries, because there was a sense that this was a real need. And the bishops had talked about it in one of, in, well, in many of their pastoral plans over the years. But in that one of their first ones, they talked about the need for this, but they didn't quite know what it looked like. Mm-hmm. But that as church, we needed to be in the position of helping people to heal, that that was important. So they were wide open in terms of their willingness to find a way to bring it to their diocese and all that kind of thing. And so over the years, I've been in 29 countries. Um, I'm a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life. Who would have ever thought the small town Minnesota girl would ever have that kind of travel? And God has just been so amazing in terms of all of that. And one of the things as we talk about this that I want to say to our listeners is that God is so much bigger than we are. And God can, God does things that we never in a million years would have anticipated. Um, and he puts all the pieces in place. You know, the fact that I was able to get this job, which I didn't even apply for. All right. I mean, I just sort of fell in my lap. Um, and, and then it just unfolded from there. And other people saw the vision, caught the vision, and it, it just went worldwide. You know, the wounds of abortion are in everybody. It's not culturally defined. Now, how it manifests, it might be, but in terms of the woundedness of a woman, we have to remember that women carry cells from every child they ever conceived the rest of their lives. And if I have a miscarriage or an abortion, I carry more cells. I start with 500,000 and they're in my body and they're active. And this, this is unfolding science, but there's a lot of stuff we still don't know about this. But, you know, we, we live in a, in a society that sort of pretends a pregnancy's a non-event. 
you can have an abortion, it'll be fine. Nobody tells you that you're going to carry these cells the rest of your life and that they're active. And the whole piece also of, you know, multiple partners and how many people have had multiple partners in our society. The reality is that my body is getting exposed and begins to develop an autoimmune reaction to this, the seminal fluid of these different partners I've had. We've got an epidemic of women with autoimmune diseases. Is this the cause? I'm just raising the question. Mm-hmm. But we, we were made by God to bond with one partner. And again, the biology is there about how long it takes my body to make this permanent attachment to my partner. I can get pregnant right away. But this long-term acceptance, because now I'm carrying his cells, my, my partner's cells as well, is a whole unfolding piece of information. If I've had 17, 18 partners, what's that doing to my body? You know? And so often these are short-term partners. They're not the long-term partners. So my body is getting exposed consistently to more stuff in terms of the autoimmune issues. It's a strange world we're living in at this point, Ken. Well, let's talk a bit about your your partner, your life partner, because Bill, yes. I know having having met the two of you when we gathered for our uh, to film our our video for Evangelium Vitae Metal, um, we got to meet Bill and realize that you two truly are a partnership. Oh, yeah. um, tell us a little bit about how Bill has been a part of your ministry and how oh, you've yeah. been part of his. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's very complex, Ken. We don't have enough time for this. Um, but, you know, it was one of those, as I said, when I met him, there was a shock of electricity. And I've never forgotten that. Yeah. It was God saying, you pay attention, because I'm headstrong. Uh, you know, I would have gone my own way. Um, he wanted to make it real obvious to me that this was a person. But in terms of both of our having having an opportunity to be part of the church, in, in that in teaching at Marquette, now he's had the opportunity to go to Rome to teach at the Gregorian, to teach at the Silesianum. I've, I'm a consultant in terms of the Pontifical Academy for Life. Um, those things are kind of separate, and yet it's in God's plan, it's together, sure. okay? Um, the people that we've known in terms of the countries he's been to, in terms of the countries I've been to, um, it, it's one of those gifts of our marriage that God brought us together and that we both understand how this works because there've been times over the years where he's been gone teaching abroad and I was at home with the, with the six kids. And there are times, many times when I was traveling, I wasn't gone for prolonged periods, but I was gone a lot for short, you know, day and a half, two days. He was a perfect father. He was there to be with the kids, to take care of whatever needed to be taken care of. And that's the grace of that sacrament, if you want me to to name it for you, um, that God gave us to each other, knowing who we were, what our gifts were, and that sort of thing. And just that openness of us children, he came from a family of nine, and I was an only child because my parents married later in life, and my mother's first fiance had been killed in World War II. And so she was 40. Okay, when I was born, well, at that point, that was really late. All right. Um, So... The two families are are very different in terms of that, and yet the faith base for both of us was very solid. Um, Mine was sort of a Polish background in terms of of the faith base, this Polish town by and large. But faith church was very important, and I had a godmother 
who had never married, but who was a very holy woman. And she did a lot of buying me books and Lives of the Saints back in the old days when they wrote a whole biography for a young person on one of the saints. That was the best set out there again. And now I don't even think you can get them anymore like that. But anyway, but but those those Lives of the Saints for me gave me a sense of, of what was this really about? They didn't just wake up one day and God said, here you go. Now you're a saint. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, right. It was it was that journey. And and for Bill, too, that journey of, of come going to a Catholic boys high school that was very similar to mine, but it was only a boarding school. But then for him on his own journey in terms of getting a, a master's degree and then coming back to Minnesota to get the Ph.D., God was in all of that in terms of sort of steering him. Where did where did he have to go at this point? You know, we don't understand God's reasoning in this, but just yes, yes, just yesterday we were having a talk about how when he was out in California, he never quite felt at home. Um, he liked it there, and, and he had a good job and everything, and friends. But it, there was just kind of this a little bit of tension there, and that's what took him back to get his PhD in Minnesota. So as God does that, it's it's an amazing thing. And, you know, my blessing with him also is that I inherited brothers and sisters in terms of his his brothers and sisters. Sure. And he came from a wonderful um, family in terms of aunts and uncles to where there were real relationships with the aunts and uncles. I had some, but my father was one of 11 toward the end of a family. His mother died when he was a teenager and so did his dad. So he didn't even know some of the older, his older siblings very well. They were often married and gone. And my mother was the youngest of six and her father died when, when she was a child. So there were those kind of missing pieces in, in their own family systems for me. Sure. Um, there were people I didn't get to know that I would have liked to have known. So now you and Bill have really a large family and, yes, we do. and your grandparents. Now, this is, of course, at the same time that you are doing these professional things. Talk to us a little yeah. bit about family life uh, <laughs> in the midst of, of building mm-hmm. a, a professional career of service in the church. There were, well, there are certain days when you would spell it chaos. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me make that clear. Yeah. Even if you aren't doing something professional with six kids, chaos yeah. is rules but but we were so blessed in terms of while god planted us in this community here in milwaukee and he had us he had a sister here and we became part of a parish that is on the edge of the inner city and has always had this very diverse um, faith base had a big school and we got to know people and one of the things that we felt called to do was to start a couples prayer group just for couples to come together to pray. And we, we did that and we did it through the parish and it wasn't any kind of, you know, it wasn't specifically one, you know, the book kind of thing. Okay. Right, this was right. just spontaneous prayer. Okay. Um, but it was such an opportunity for the guys to be with other men for whom faith meant something. And for us women to be with other women and there's chemistry behind this all. See, I, I have this biochemical mind, so there are other pieces here. But when women are to, are together, we get we get more oxytocin. We feel calmer, and we feel really bonded. Now, I'll think about this through history. Women lived in communities because our children depended on it. Should I die, there had to be somebody who could nurse my baby. And so we oftentimes lived with people who we were really bonded to. Same was true for the men. 
but they were they were hunters and they lived a dangerous life. But it was important for them to be with other men because when men are with other men consistently, their testosterone levels. If I am not with other men when I'm young, my testosterone's too high. And then as I get older, it drops too low. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so God and his wisdom. <laughs> built men to be with men, women to be with women. And then together in our marriage, that the, the oxytocin and the testosterone and all those other chemicals there balance each other out. And so it isn't only the spiritual, it isn't only the psychological, there's a physiological component to this. But it's it's one of those fascinating pieces of, of science that's out there. Again, we don't talk about yeah. this stuff, you know? Truly complementary. Oh, totally complementary. Yeah. But see, if I happen to be on the pill... When I pick my partner, I pick the wrong partner biologically because I pick a male who is too much like me in terms of what's called the MHC complex. All right. This is a major histocompatibility complex. It's one of the things um, that helps us in terms of health. Okay. So if I've picked the wrong husband, our children may not be so healthy. Okay. God designed me to pick a husband whose immune system is quite different from mine. All right. Because that's what gives our children the stronger of the immune systems. Well, the other problem with this is if I'm on the pill and I picked Fred or whoever it is I picked, if I go off the pill, which I might because we've decided to have children, I am no longer attracted to him biologically. He smells bad to me. And there are many divorces that happen as a result of this. And nobody quite knows why. It's just kind of like, well, I don't know what happened. You know, the relationship just kind of blew up. And men aren't told this. Women aren't told this. We This should be part of marriage prep when we do it. We need to talk about it because people need to be making good choices here. And again, the doctors put our daughters on the pill at now 12 and 13. So she's been on the pill for, I don't know, how many years? 10 years? 15 years? When she picks a partner, she doesn't even know her body can function without it. Because the doctor told her it was for a period, you know, or her acne or whatever. Um, there's there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say um, purposeful dishonesty, but there's a lot of untruth in terms of the medicine and the, that sort of health issue that's there. Um, and so we've got all these people with broken families. Yeah, not not full disclosure kind of thing. Not full that. disclosure. No, not at all. Wow. No. Not even full knowledge for a lot of people, Ken. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Let's talk a little bit about the actual work of Project Rachel. You you made reference to bringing together essentially a team to respond to and to work with women and men uh, who have been affected by abortion. So tell us a little bit about the, the process itself. Yeah, it, the process itself is sort of self-directed in a sense. And Project Rachel is different from many of the other post-abortion ministries that have grown up over the years. Now there's a ton of them out there. Yeah. But Project Rachel was really designed to be a personal ministry. When when I started it, you could not have put together a support group because anybody who was too embarrassed, they were too, too ashamed to be in a room with someone else. Okay, yeah. So it was clear to me that we had to be one-on-one. And again, having dealt with my friend and other things over time, you know, I'd learned more and, and thought I at least had some kind of knowledge is that this needed to be a process because pregnancy is one of the most complex experiences in the human body. Okay. And there's so many parts of us that are involved in terms of our identity, in terms of the physiology, in terms of all of that. 
And so as I worked on this and prayed about it and talked to a ton of people, um, I, I really decided that we needed to have people for different stages of the healing process. And so we had specially trained priests who were confessors. We had mental health people um, who could walk with her or him um, through the, the questions of the, maybe the alcohol abuse, the, the, the suicidality, the why am I so confused? Why do I keep dropping partners and picking up new partners sort of thing? Um, and, and really with that component, that allowed us to do different, different things. People could be anywhere in that process and we could find somebody to refer them to, to walk with them. And spiritual directors as well. Um, you know, it was sort of a gather as many people as you could. Nobody was being overtaxed. There weren't that many people coming at that point. But everybody was in a learning process. And so that ability to refer someone to, again, a sister, to a mental health person. Um, all the mental health people we had initially were Catholic. Okay. So they were aware of the need for the spiritual component as well. And that's, that's how it, it came together. And as I look back on it, that was purely God-driven inspiration because there were all these parts to it. And what the society was telling us wasn't that. The society saying, it's nothing. You know, well, she's bothered. It's really not her abortion. It might be, okay, take your pick. But the reality is that it was the abortion. And for the men, we, it took a while for that one to come around. But I kept, I kept running into men. Well, what I discovered is that fathers know we're pregnant before we know we're pregnant by scent. So my partner would recognize that I was pregnant, not necessarily in his head, but his body recognizes the state of pregnancy. And his body is in a state of changing also. He goes through all kinds of hormonal changes during, during this time of pregnancy. And what happens to him when she has an abortion? We still don't understand all of that. We know that for him, it's very painful um, if he's at all involved in the pregnancy. Okay. Um, you've got the guys who are not emotionally involved. Um, you know, sex is entertaining, but it's not really there in terms of purpose, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But so you've got a, a, a long string of possible who these men are in terms of how involved they were in the pregnancy, how much they wanted the pregnancy, all those kinds of things. But for men, this is also just a, just blows them out of the water. And to be able to talk about that is important. And for us also to, to recognize, Ken, that the children I have who follow an abortion carry cells from that child because I, as mother, have those cells in my body during the pregnancy. They're passed on to the siblings. I can't tell you how many people I've run into over the years who said, oh, this really makes sense to me now. I always thought I was supposed to have an older brother or sister. And of course it was never mentioned, you know, and it's possible that it could also have been a miscarriage. Okay. But, but those two sort of hidden losses leave footprints in our lives. And you look at the incredible number of women and we really don't know how many million women have had abortions over the years because, you know, the, the woman that, that I knew, this would have been pre-Roe v. Wade. And then it was very interesting. This is a footnote, but I there was a woman I worked with in the diocese who was considerably older than I was. She was almost old enough to be my mother. And she said to me one day, Vicky, can I go have, let's, let's go have coffee. I want to have a conversation. What? I'm not thinking what we're talking about. Yeah, it was the story of her abortion when she was a young woman. And, you know, she's somebody who everybody in the church knew. She, you know, nobody would have been a million years 
anticipated that that was part of her life story. And, and so those life experiences of people telling me their stories also helped to sort of in, enlarge my own thinking on who all is touched in this in terms of, again, the, you know, the, the siblings, the, the, these partners, all of those people, um, it's part of it. And it, it goes out into the extended family many times because someone knows that their sister had an abortion. They might not know what to make of it, but they know or a brother, or a best friend. And the children who are involved might also know that somebody had an abortion, maybe not their own mother, but maybe an aunt. And that happened, I get those stories too, you know, of, I never would have thought that aunt so-and-so would have had an abortion, but then aunt so-and-so's children are reacting also. And it's hard until women process this, and men, to really be able to engage in an intimate relationship that's honest because we don't tell people, all right, that I had a previous abortion with someone else. Um, And we don't tell our children. And so there are all these secrets that are being held within our society that are enormously painful and spiritually damaging. And as church, it's important for us to talk about this healing because God restores us completely if we give him permission. And you may say, what? Say, what did you just say? I tell people that. Give God permission to heal you. Because abortion is one of those things that you keep locked up inside you. And, you know, it's kind of you go to confession and you sort of come out, but you're you're still hanging on to the guilt of that. And God wants us to be free. He wants to set us free. And 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 just to give us a new shot at life, a new a new chance. And for men, it's true, too. And so many men don't talk about it because they're so embarrassed by it. And there are some wonderful men in the U.S. who are post-abortive fathers who are speaking publicly, doing ministry. But we need more more men to be able to just to be open, you know, even to talk to another guy over a beer about that loss because that other guy probably has it too, again, given the sheer numbers in our society. Well, what can the rising leaders of the pro-life world do to build on this ministry truly of mercy that you pioneered with Project Rachel and and the national office? Well, we need to encourage them to be conscious of this part of it because as a country, well, as a pro-life movement, okay, we got so focused on the, the loss of the child, which is I'm, in no way am I taking away from this. But we didn't let the focus go broader in terms of the woundedness of the people who had the abortion loss. And for us as church, as whoever we are, pro-life leaders, we need to be very conscious of how many people are out there that are walking wounded. You know, to know that when we have people that are gathering at the clinics to protest, Quite likely in that group, there are people who have had abortions. Now, they're not going to volunteer that to you, but they're there. And even as pro-life leaders, we need to be cautious of our language and not use condemnatory language. All right. There, but for the grace of God goes any one of us. Given the right set of circumstances, any one of us could be that person. But rather to talk about how the church has this ministry and there are people who have been healed and and set free and talk about it and, you know, to know who the fathers are because those guys are out there. <laughs> um, they do this different than women do. Uh, you know, they talk publicly about it when they're, when they're ready, but 
to help men be able to resolve that too, because they don't know what to do with it. And she just sort of broke off the relationship, that first lady, and she was pregnant. And I don't know what happened. And oh, and then she told me she had an abortion. And who am I going to talk to about that? There's, there's, it's, it's not a man's conversation and not even a man with a woman. Okay. Unless somebody makes this a safe space, but we need to have those conversations. We need to talk to our kids about the fact that abortion doesn't solve anything. We need to assure them that if, you know, should they get pregnant and I am not saying we're giving them permission, but I'm telling you that in this society, this is a, a, a major epidemic. Okay. That will be there for them. That will walk with them um, because they don't know that. And there's always this fear. If I tell my mom, she's going to kill me, you know, or, or whatever. Um, and we, again, don't know how widespread this is. We don't think about that. And you think about the millions and millions of people, people in your friendship circle, people in my friendship circle, people in our extended family. There's so many out there. And for us to be cautious of our language, to always talk about, you know, abortion takes a life. It leaves footprints in the man's life, the woman's life. It's going to be very painful for them. And, you know, the church is there with a ministry that really sets people free. Um, you know, that, that God takes care of this if we bring it to him. And so for us to be those messengers about the possibility of healing and wholeness um, and through, again, through the sacraments. Now, having spent a lifetime in this ministry. Are you, do you have hope that, that we will be able to, I don't know, move beyond <laughs> this cult, you know, this culture, which has enabled so many abortions? Yeah. yeah. I think that the one, the one hope that is there is that the people who have been touched and who have been healed. And now this number continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because exponentially now, Many dioceses have ministries, not only here and other countries, that those healed people are going to be the ones that may make a difference here. Okay. Whether it's somebody who gets elected to public office and puts an end legally to, to abortion, whether states are able to enact or keep in place limitations. You know, now we're talking about, oh, let's just open the, you know, open the doors anytime, any place, any, any age. Um, we have to, really pray that those people who have the potential to be authentic leaders in this, in this area come forth. They're there, they're out there, but we also have to empower them to do that. And I see that there's a lot more, there are many more people involved in speaking the truth about abortion now than there were when I, when I started this, Nobody was even talking about it. Then we went through the stage of, well, abortion for everybody under any circumstances, you know, and it was hard to even be heard in that milieu unless you were in a faith-based milieu. But even there, you look at the statistics and the number of people who've had abortions, Ken, they're everywhere. It's huge. Okay. Um, And as faith-based people, we need to be conscious of that when we talk about it within church. Okay. It's about healing. And it's about making sure that there's information in the back of how to find healing. You don't have to say anything. You just put the brochures out there and you just make sure they're back there. Okay. God will lead them if that's where they're supposed to go. God's going to find a brochure for them and tap them on their shoulder. Here, take this home with you. Um, but, but that's an important piece. And I do think, I do think we've made progress. There are many, many, many pro-life groups out there now. Okay. Providing 
you know, intellectual information, working in terms of legal legal questions, the law, and many, many, many outreaches in terms of ministry for those who are facing abortion loss or the you know or a pregnancy out of out of proper timing, however you want to phrase it. But I see that that there's much hope in that because there's there's a real explosion of that there. Okay, we don't necessarily see it if we don't look for it. But if you poke around a little bit, you discover there are a number of crisis pregnancy centers. I mean, many years ago, I was a birthright volunteer, but birthright was the only crisis pregnancy outreach in our town. Okay. And now over time, you see there's many, many more. Well, I I see that's kind of how God's spreading this out. You know, the more outreaches we have, the more people we can touch. We can touch different people with one versus the other one. And so I, I think there's hope. I don't know how quickly any of this is going to transpire because the society has got lots of issues going on right now, as you know, but you know, all we can do is be faithful and pray and we can promote that healing's possible and that will make a difference for people. Well, Vicki Thorne, we at the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture are delighted to honor your lifetime of work in making a difference, in bringing healing and the experience of God's mercy to so many women and men. Uh, And so thank you so much for your ministry and for being a witness. Well, and I add one thing quickly here. Um, I encourage the people who are hearing this to pray for the people they know. I mean, they may not know who they know for healing, but also just to pray for protection for the, the, the ministry and the pro-life movement, because uh, this is going to sound whatever, but the devil doesn't like it. <laughs> and there's an awful lot of attack that goes on subtly and not so subtly. And I think that his pro-lifers, one of our, our chief outreaches, it may not be that we're called to be at the clinic, but we are called to pray. And to just ask God's protection for those people who are doing this and to, you know, pray for the softening of the hearts of those that make laws and whatever is there, however the spirit moves us to pray. But I think we have to remember to do that because we get caught up in the the external, the political, the, you know, that kind of thing. And we forget that we've got to, we've got to establish a, a baseline there. That is an important reminder. So thank you. And congratulations on, on the Evangelium Vitae medal. Thank you. It's beautiful. That was, I'm so honored by the, the whole event. Caught me unexpected, I must confess. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you and congratulations to Vicki Thorne. In the show notes, you will find a link to the Evangelium Vitae medal presentation and to the Project Rachel ministry. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time here on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>